Good late morning, everybody. We won't keep you. I know this is the last session before lunch. Uh, thank you all for attending. This is chronic pain assessment. As a couple pieces of housekeeping, if you would please silence your mobile devices out of respect for those around you and our uh, speaker today. Our speaker today is Dr. Michael Clark, who's with the Innova Health System. I'll let him talk more about that. Um, if you haven't already, like I said, please uh, download the Pain Week app. We're looking for all feedback on the event as well as this session. So please help me welcome Dr. Clark. Thanks. Well, thank you, everybody. Um, as you heard, I'm uh, the chairman of psychiatry at the Innova Health System in Fairfax, Virginia, outside of DC. That is a relatively recent change for me. I previously was on the faculty for 25 years at Johns Hopkins where I ran arguably the last remaining interdisciplinary uh, rehabilitation program for patients with chronic non-malignant pain syndromes. And as we talk about assessment, uh, this is in some ways a very basic lecture and uh, what is referred to in this curriculum of Pain Week as really a core educational lecture. I would argue that it's the most important lecture, not because I'm narcissistic, although I've been accused of such, um, but really because you can't do anything if you don't do a good assessment. You can't expect a good outcome. You can't expect to be able to argue why you did what you did unless you have done a good assessment and you've formulated that case. So. I want you to think a little bit about that as we go through this. Um, think about what you do now, think about what your colleagues do, how you do it, um, if there are ways to do it better. Um, everybody has a, a slightly different approach, but I hope you'll see that there are core elements here. And most importantly, that it's really not that different from any other patient that you work up. We, we talk about chronic pain as an important problem, and it certainly is. In fact, you can see on this slide that a lot of people suffer from this problem. The problem itself is tremendously heterogeneous. There is not one thing of chronic pain. There are many conditions uh, that manifest as pain, that have pain as a primary symptom, uh, with all kinds of underlying causes that span every aspect of who we are and how we break down or suffer in various ways. And so we have to have an approach as a foundation that will really allow us to address that. And that is what the practice of medicine boils down to. You're supposed to be able to work someone up with a chief complaint, uh, not see these patients as particularly odd, different, strange, belying a different process. The same process applies. <clears throat> and you will not be able to do that good treatment unless you have a sense of, well, what do I really think is going on? And what has this patient had before? Um, what do I know from the literature? How can I piece those elements together in a way that makes sense so that what you are talking about is rational, coherent, 
transparent to other entities that are looking over our shoulder, and family members and the patient themselves saying, does this really make sense? Is this what will most likely help me? So that you are not constantly in an interaction where someone is coming to you and saying, I want this, give it to me, or we won't pay for this unless you do X, or the patient's been on this medicine too long and you should stop it because it's costing the healthcare system too much money. You, you are all getting letters like that. You are all getting pushback. You are all getting demands. And if you want to maintain yourself as a true healthcare practitioner, this is the core of what you do. And this is how you fight that argument. Part of the problem here, though, is that most of us feel as if we never really got much training in this area. It's a, it's a relatively new phenomenon that has gained a lot of attention. It's also a relatively new educational process of trying to get practitioners to understand pain and to think about its complexities, to understand the various treatments that get prescribed and how those treatments can get us into trouble, like all treatments have a downside. So still today, when you ask practitioners, do you feel confident doing this? Do you know what to do? Can you make these distinctions? Can you use these treatments? Can you recommend them with confidence? The, the majority of people say, no, I don't. It's not that they don't want to. It's not that they don't seek the information, but most people are feeling ill-prepared to deal with these patients. And yet, in primary care, half of the patients that are seen probably have a chronic pain complaint, at least as part of their presentation. And 80% of people that go into a general medical practitioner's office come there with a symptom complaint. They don't walk through the door with their diagnosis in hand, but they have symptoms that they're experiencing. And those symptoms, almost by definition, will be chronic. A year later, half of those people will have the same symptom. And after an exhaustive workup, we only, on average, give someone the cause of their fatigue, their pain, their insomnia, their dizziness, 25% of the time. So we have to know how to do this. Uh, here's a definition of chronic pain. Like most definitions in this field, you, you find yourself looking at that. You can't really argue with it. Um, but it doesn't really tell you what to do or shed much light on what it is that is going on with any given patient. Whoops. Goodness. Okay, I'm a little challenged with the technology. Um, think about all that goes into these patients. Think about all that goes into all of our patients. They have very complicated lives. They have very complicated physiologies. And there are a whole laundry list of things that might be relevant to any given person. And as you stare at this, and if you remember that class in your initial year of training where you learned how to take a history and do a physical examination, and it took you about three hours to do that. 
and your roommate wants to do another physical on you so he can practice. That's, a, that's an interesting experience. Um, so, yes, there are all these things that you have to think about. There are all these things that you have to put into the equation. Not necessarily on the first visit, not necessarily in the first month, but as you're constantly going through this process with your patient, you're gathering information, you're putting it into a framework, you're thinking about that formulation, you're refining it, and you don't have to be right on the first encounter, but you have to have a plan and you have to have a way to do that. So of course, the key is a detailed history about pain and other related issues, trying to get those records uh, because most patients have them somewhere. Uh, thinking about the different etiologies and your differential diagnosis. Trying to understand the impact of their illness on all the domains of their life. Thinking about how the physical examination is not only necessary, but hopefully will confirm what you're already thinking or uncover some things that you hadn't necessarily put into the equation and deciding whether or not any diagnostic study makes sense to do, or are you just doing it for the sake of doing it, um, not something that you want to find yourself in. Uh, because that should be telling you that you really haven't thought carefully about what really could be going on. If you're hoping the test will provide you with the answer, rather than confirm the answer or rule out something that is really awful that you want to make sure isn't there, then you should go back and see what you could add or enhance to the information that you have. And of course there are a number of challenges in this field and many of them come down to the fact that we don't have that objective test. We don't have that ability to say, are you really in pain or aren't you? And if you are, this is how it would be described, rated. And so we are left thinking about how can we expand beyond that subjective element? And can we do that in a way that focuses on functionality? And is that person able to do what they want to do? Is their life productive? Do they describe it as satisfying? Or are they coming to you saying, I can't do the things I want to do. I'm not functioning in the way that I should. I'm suffering more than I think I should be. And how can you help me address that? So part of that really does need to assess the person and the life that that person is living and understanding, well, who is the patient that's sitting before you? And what is going on in their life? And what are the things that they're being expected to do that they feel they can't? And how can you begin to get a more in-depth understanding of them? And simply because it's probably the most common thing that happens to these patients, they get prescribed medications, you really should have a detailed history of what have they taken? for how long and what doses, what kind of side effects, what kind of efficacy, specifically what kind of efficacy, did it help their pain, did it help their mood, did it help something else? Because many patients will come in and tell you, I've tried everything, none of it worked. And you know that that's not true because there are just too many options now 
and there are too many weeks that would need to pass for you to have a therapeutic trial of every medication in the appropriate dose in the combinations that are available, the treatment options really are infinite and would fill your life. So more likely the patient who is telling you I've tried everything and it's failed is that maybe they've taken something once or twice, maybe they think what they think is the complete range of treatments is quite narrow, but it is part of the conversation and a reason to delve deeper into those areas. So as I said, your initial hurdle is just talking to that person and trying to elicit a history from them beyond I'm hurting or I hurt really bad and trying to define the particulars of that. And what helps you do that really are not only talking to them, but also observing them and looking for consistencies. Looking at the way in which they move, looking at the way in which they grimace, looking at whether they do any of those things well, poorly, with distress, with ease. And then also trying to get collateral information, which can take many different forms. A family member, a previous provider, the chart, the PDMP in your state, insurance claims, pharmacy records, the, the list goes on. And even though you can respect someone's confidentiality, if you're engaging them and if you have the relationship with them, they should want to give you that information so that you can work together and get to a good outcome. And if those sources are blocked from you or not available for some reason, that should make you think, what's going on? And it should also make you realize that you're hamstrung right out of the gate. You can't get access to that information. You need that to do a good job. <clears throat> now, I'm not very big on mnemonics, but there, there are several that exist in the literature that a lot of people like. Um, this is one of them. If you look at what it stands for and know that, you don't really need the mnemonic. And so if you think about what am I supposed to do for every patient, get a history, do the assessment, think about the mechanisms involved, look at other factors like social and psychological, think about treatment, educating the patient, and then reassessing them probably the single most important thing. Coming back over and over again. This is an iterative process. Here's another mnemonic for the history of present illness, which again I think is the single most important starting place to try to get a full picture of that chief complaint. And a lot of people, when you look at this aspect of their charter or an evaluation of somebody, it's really minimal. It doesn't go into a lot of detail. The patient's been sick so long that it's all kind of forgotten. And all you get is what have been the recent surgeries or the recent procedures or the fact that things haven't really worked. But you do want to think about the location, how long this has really been going on, how did it start, what characteristics does it have, what's the severity, 
What's the goal of the person who has this? Not everybody wants zero pain. Some people do. And for some people that is an achievable goal. But for others it may not be. And if you're over the age of about 40 sitting here, you know that being pain-free is probably not an option. So function is, and coping and resilience and all of those things that every one of you, of you are doing or you wouldn't be sitting here. Because nobody woke up today and said, I want to go hear Clark talk. Except maybe Carla. Um, so, how did you get here? You didn't have to walk through a visual imagery exercise. You rolled over, you felt like you'd rather keep sleeping, but you got up, you got ready, you came to the meeting, hopefully you've had some fun and learned something, and by the time you go to bed tonight, you'll say, I'm glad I got out of bed. That is your coping, that is your resilience, which these patients are, are lacking in spades and need a lot of help in terms of understanding what it means to be functional in today's world despite being however old you are and despite having whatever illnesses and other burdens that you have because we all have them. What are the aggravating factors for your symptoms? What are the relieving factors? And what else comes with it? And how are those things important to the overall picture? So you've all seen these before. And thankfully, the, the push um, to, to use these to elicit a number on every encounter, on every patient interaction is somewhat diminished. Um, but you all know, particularly if you've ever been asked to do this, that it's almost impossible. You're, you're in a lot of pain or you're not really. Um, yes, maybe I can force you to give me a number, but your six will not be my six. My six going to a two will be different than your six going to a two. Um, but what do they do? Like all tools, they facilitate the production and the final product. And this is just one tool. It facilitates the conversation, it engages you, it opens up other questions, it allows the patient to kind of move along with you in a predictable way. Talking to people about what else is going on or how this is affecting them psychologically is a little bit fraught with pitfall. Particularly if the patient has not been doing well for a while and is getting bounced from person to person, um, or if you happen to be me, uh, a psychiatrist, and they show up on your doorstep, no, nobody is happy to see me. And, and everybody is thinking, why am I here? Is it because my doctor thinks I don't have a real problem? And yet, it's important to know something about the person. And it's important not to miss major depression, or generalized anxiety, or addiction, or any other number of psychiatric or psychological problems. If you're sick, you're dealing with some degree of loss. 
which is part of grief. If you have been sick for a long time, you've lost more than just your health or your sense of well-being. You've probably lost a few other things as well. Relationships, jobs, finances. So there's always something to talk about. There's always something to investigate. There are, again, various screening tools that can help you do this. They're not very good tools, though, I have to tell you. How many people in this room have, uh, know of the PHQ-9? How, how many of you have heard of the PHQ-8? Do you know what the difference is? The suicide question. Do you know why they came up with the eight? Not because people don't have suicidal thinking or, or uh, score yes on that question. It's because nobody knows what to do with it when somebody answers it. So why ask? Then, you know. Now, you might, you, you might ask similar questions about the PHQ-2, um, but... Even the PHQ-9, if you review the psychometrics of that screening questionnaire, the positive predictive value and the negative predictive value, meaning if I score high, how likely is it that I really have a disorder diagnosis? And if I score normal, low, how likely is it that I really don't have one of those diagnoses? Because that's really what you want to know from these screening questionnaires. Do they really tell you anything? And the percentage or probability for both of those numbers is about 30%. So think about if you had a test like a mammogram and it was 30% predictive, positive or negative. No one would get that test. No one would use that test. Or if they did use it, they would use it with a lot of other things in play. So, the tools can be helpful. The tools can facilitate the conversation. The tools can get people thinking about what they need to ask and not miss. But you're the expert. You're the person who's making the chair, not the hammer. Now, there are a few concepts that you will see in these patients that perhaps are a little bit more common than in every other patient group. Um, we talk about pain catastrophizing. So this is the tendency to magnify the threat value of a pain stimulus and to feel helpless in the context of pain. You know these people. You've seen this in action. You may even have friends that tend to do this. The smallest thing tends to be the largest mountain. This, this has occurred, but this disaster will follow. That's how patients who catastrophize do this. It's correlated with a lot of bad outcomes, as you might imagine. If you think about your life in general, if every time somebody came in and said to you, oops, this didn't go well, or oh, I need you to help me with this, and you reacted like the world was ending, you would not be terribly successful, and things would not go well for you. The same thing is true with patients. Um, so, you have to think about, when you see this, how can you engage that person to minimize some of that? And, believe it or not, there are a lot of 
studies that show that just educating the patient, just spending time with the patient and helping them think about what's going on and what the options are decreases this. Yes, you can send somebody to a psychologist and do a complicated cognitive behavioral psychotherapy regimen, but in the office, taking care of patients, that relationship has tremendous power. <clears throat> Kinesiophobia is another thing that you will see a lot. It's a fancy word which basically means the fear of movement. And it is related to catastrophizing, it's related to depression and anxiety, it's related to other issues like the severity of injury or the degree of pain that people have. But it is that sense of, I'm in so much pain, if I do this and I'm in more pain, I must be causing damage to myself, I will hurt more, not less, so therefore, I don't want to do that. And you can understand how somebody would reach that conclusion or have that experience. But it's counterintuitive when you talk about functioning and how to get people moving again and help them build that confidence so that they don't fall into this avoidant trap. There's the whole issue of medications and chemical coping and whether or not uh, somebody is getting adequate treatment, optimal treatment, experiencing side effects from treatment, just experiencing no benefit from treatment. Um, but keep in mind that human beings are ingenious. And human beings don't follow directions. All right? 50% of patients in medical care are non-compliant. It's just the way it is. Many of us have not taken the medicine exactly like prescribed it for as long as we were supposed to, done our physical therapy, changed our diet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we could get people to just do what we tell them to do, imagine what the impact would be for healthcare expenditures in this country and outcomes. So you should expect that people are not going to do what you want them to you should be following up with them to make sure that they do and to understand why they're not. And one of the things that people do is they make use of stuff that is at hand. And so what's at hand? A whole bunch of medicines that are sitting in their medicine cabinet, many of which may be quite old, but people try things. People remember what medicines did for them. People think, well, if I have this bad cough and I've still got some antibiotics around, maybe I'll take them, make sure I don't get pneumonia. Because I'm doing something. Human beings like to do things. So when people are doing this stuff, don't just leap to the end of the rainbow and say, aha, you're a drug addict. Um, but try to understand, why did you do that? You'll get some very interesting answers by the way. Um, I used to write out instructions for patients and say, this is how you're going to move through these progressions. And then I had the experience where a patient came in and they, they weren't on any combination of things that would have been conceivable from the plan that I had outlined. And I said, how did you wind up on this? Well, I, I don't know. I tried to remember as best I could what you told me to do. And he said, but I gave you a written statement. He said, 
Oh, yeah, I think I lost that on the way to the parking garage. Why didn't you call me? I didn't want to bother you. I know, but a month has gone by, and this is what you're on now. This is a complete train wreck. Oh, okay. Well, sorry, I did my best. Okay. So you gotta, you got to talk to people. Um, and, again, there are screening tools that can help you do all of this because, I mean, we are worried about substance use disorders. And we know that they are common in this population, and we know that it, they sometimes occur with medicines that we prescribe. And you hear a lot of talk about opioids, but guess what is just as commonly prescribed, maybe even more so? I'd like to look at those numbers. Benzodiazepines. Everybody's getting a benzodiazepine to sleep or to relax or to deal with something one way or the other. And what are, the, what are the medicines coming down the pike that are supposed to be panaceas? Medical marijuana. Do you really think it's going to be a panacea? No. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying you will see history repeat itself. Trust me. What do you know about ketamine? Great medicine. Does a lot of things. Interesting pharmacology. Lots of reasons to think about using it. Has anybody in this room ever seen a patient abuse ketamine? Yeah, I have. Many, actually. So we've got to think about what are the risks to our patients of our treatments. And we've got to be aware of things that are reinforcing and rewarding and cause our patients to want to do more of something rather than less. So, once again, you have to talk to people. The screens help you talk to people. And they don't take necessarily a long time, particularly if you're thinking about, like, look at that CAGE questionnaire. How long would it really take you to have that little brief conversation with somebody and substitute, not for alcohol, any substance, any behavior? Have you gotten into trouble with stamp collecting? So, Ask people these questions and think about what their answers mean to you. You can go online. You can find these assessments. Many of them are in the public domain. Many of them you'll look at and say, that's ridiculous. Um, some of them you'll look at them and say, that might be helpful. You have to think about your practice, your patient population, the way your office is staffed, who will do these, the patient, you, somebody else. Do they need to be scored? Who will do that? A tablet? A human being? And the point is, don't do everything. Do something that makes sense. Do something that helps you. But I can't emphasize enough the, that aspect of the collateral informant. If the patient is the only source of information, you are taking a risk because you just, not that they're necessarily lying to you, but they have their perspective and they have their distortion of reality and they have their memory problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's nice to triangulate and to look for other ways in which to get that information. 
I once had a doctor send me a patient for a consult. I called him back and said, um, you know, I, I see that this guy has quite a history of substance abuse, um, particularly alcohol. Uh, are you sure that that's not in the picture? He said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite certain of that. And I said, how do you say that with such confidence? He said, you know, Dr. Clark, this town is about eh, 1,500 people. The bartender is a friend of mine. I know any of my patients that are showing up in the bar too frequently, I get a phone call. So, yeah, I'm confident he is not at least going to the bar. I'm pretty confident he's not going to the liquor store either because that's my brother-in-law. <laughs> okay. Doesn't work in Phoenix, but there are different ways to do this. Um, think about other elements of the patient as you learn about them. Do other medical diagnoses come from problems like substance abuse? Um, or other chaotic, risky behaviors, or aspects of the person's lifestyle. Think about the bigger picture and try to use all the information. So as you start working with somebody, you heard me say early on, you don't have to be right right out of the box. You don't really have to ever be right. It's nice if you are, but you should at least have a working plan. Put your money down on something and say, this is what I think they've got. Maybe they have these other things, but this is what I'm going to pursue. And if it works out, great, and you can confirm it, fantastic. If it doesn't, think about, do you have the right diagnosis? Have you missed something? If your patient's not getting better, why not? And as you treat somebody, try to follow a process that is rational, that is incremental, that builds on success and eliminates elements that are associated with outcomes that are not what you were hoping for. So that through the iterative process, you get closer to the bullseye, you get a more sophisticated and individualized treatment plan, and you get a better outcome. So because of the opioid issue, and other medicines with abuse potential and that can interact with opioids, you, you do have to worry about somebody dying from our treatments. And you do have to worry about them abusing it or diverting it or it falling into the hands of somebody inadvertently and something bad happening to them. So, again, there's screening tools, but really you have to use the approach with everybody. That's the whole idea behind universal precautions is that you don't know. I can't look at you guys and say, who was trashed last night? Who's smoking marijuana later this afternoon? Who's not taking their medicine as prescribed? I have to think about how to get that information. So if you remember that 50% of people don't do what they're supposed to do, and you know that in large sample databases of urine drug toxicology screens that about 60% of those test results are inconsistent, meaning the drug that's prescribed is not there or something's there that wasn't prescribed. How likely is it that you think you can say, I don't need to worry about this with Ms. McGillicuddy? Worry about it. You'll be surprised. Um, 
There's a whole host of aberrant drug-taking behaviors um, that are more indicative of substance abuse, um, some more so than others. Um, you know, if somebody's forging your prescriptions or injecting drugs um, that you've prescribed for oral use, obviously there's a serious problem there. Um, and you've got to figure out what that problem is, whether it's addiction, something else, and what you're going to do about it. Um, there are behaviors that are in the gray zone and might be a different set of issues. The, the point is that as you, you should expect these, as you see them or encounter them or learn about them, you should follow up and ask the patient about them, not with the judgmental hand, but just simply to say, I'd like to try and understand what's going on, because this isn't what I would expect you to be doing if you're in care with me. So that's why reassessment is so important. Get the information, share the information, get more information. Refine what your thinking is. And tell patients that that's what's going to happen. Tell them that you really do need that reassessment. Patients ask me all the time, why do I have to come and see you every time? Why can't you just give me refills and I'll come back in six months? International patients ask for a year, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd love for you to go back to wherever and have my prescriptions in hand for a whole year and I don't see you. Well, I can just call you on the phone. Well, you know, it's a little different than that. It's not just hearing your voice or answering my questions. It's seeing you. It's interacting with you. It's having the relationship. Why don't you give more refills, Dr. Clark? Because I want you to come back. What's my one hook? <laughs> All right? My winning personality, the fact that you get to pay me to see me? No, it's you want something from me, the prescription. Okay, I'll at least get to see you in a month. So, think about how you're going to build that relationship and what you're going to be looking at. Um, it's also. It's also a lot better if you do spend time with people um, because the relationship gets stronger and more interesting and you learn things about people and you begin to differentiate. Otherwise, you're just thinking about everybody as chronic pain or, oh, that person's difficult. I don't want to see them today. Um, maybe I can cancel their appointment and see them in a month, give them a refill. Um, but if you put the time in, it's worth it and you have a much more subtle understanding of what's going on with somebody, and then you can anticipate the problems and prevent some of them from happening or jump on them earlier. So the basics of that follow-up structure, how much pain relief are they getting, what kind of adverse side effects are they having, what's their function, is it better, and are they doing something they shouldn't be doing? Probably. You want to individualize things. You want to assess their functional disability and try to figure out what are all the comorbidities that are involved. It won't just be the disease process. It won't just be the comorbid diseases that patients have. It will be aspects of who they are, aspects of what they're doing, and aspects of their life writ large. Try to keep things simple. Try to get rid of treatments, not just add. You don't want your patient to turn into an onion. 
And there's layer upon layer upon layer of stuff, and you have no idea what's going on. And much of what we did in our program at Hopkins was stop stuff and say, we can't make any sense out of this, and this doesn't make any sense, and so let's get rid of it. It's clearly not helping, or you wouldn't be here. So you'd be amazed at how many people look a lot better after you've stopped 10 medicines. Um, and people always ask me, well, when should I get help? And what should be the prompt for that? Here are, here are a few themes. But fundamentally, I think it comes down to if your patient is not getting better, then try to figure out why, and maybe that's a time to ask somebody else. If you don't know what the diagnosis is, if you need access to some specialized treatment that you don't do, if you can't get them to the functional goal that you've been targeting, um, if you look down at the chart and someday realize, holy cow, these people aren't on a lot of medicines, or that's an awful high dose, um, maybe somebody else should take a look at that and tell me if it makes sense or not. Or give me some deeper assessment into what the patient's noncompliance boils down to and whether or not there is an addiction. Uh, or if you just need somebody else to give you ideas. I mean, the great part of medicine is talking about cases with colleagues and saying, what would you do in this situation? Oh, this is what I would do, or this is the su success I had, or I tried this, it was a disaster, don't do that. Um, that's the fun of our field, is sharing those kind of stories. So share them. So think about how you're going to have a personal approach that you follow and feel comfortable with that is structured that is standardized, that becomes so intuitive that you can do it in your sleep, you can do it in 30 minutes, you can do it in four hours, um, whatever the situation demands. Think about the tools that are going to help you to do that. Think about what the goals are for treatment and sharing those with the patient up front so that they understand the relationship and the process and what's expected of them. It's not just about patient rights, it's about patient responsibilities. It's not just about me filling your order, it's about us working together. Try to minimize the referrals to specialists because you'll find yourself losing track of the threads. But if you are kind of coordinating things and you're using those judiciously and they're a source of good collateral information, they can be another tool. So I'll stop there. I wish you well. Enjoy the week. Try not to lose too much money.